Tonight I want to talk about two big ideas. And I want to talk about these two ideas because not only are they a part of the story of Christmas, but they're also a part of our own stories. And I think it's really important that we make the connection between our stories and the story of Christmas. And the two ideas that I want to talk about is the idea of, the idea of wondering, of questioning, thinking about things, and the idea of waiting, what it's like to long for something when you don't have it in your life. I want to talk about those two ideas. And, and I want to talk about those ideas by drawing our attention to some seldom looked at aspects of the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, there, there are dimensions of this story that I think we've lost through the years for many of us, and, and maybe the more you've been around church, the more you've lost, or maybe if you haven't been around church, maybe you don't know these things, but there are details that we sort of ignore in this story. Um, see, this story is so well-known, and it's so repeated, and it's one of those things that every year we kind of know what the pastor's going to talk about, that we just sort of fast-forward and skip to the end. You know, it's like Mary, Joseph, the, you know, the whole thing, we kind of get it all, and and in that process, I think we miss just how human this story is. And we miss how gritty, in some ways, this story is. We, we miss even some of the everyday nature of what's taking place in this story. And, and part of that happens because of some of the images and things that we associate. You know, it's not just that we, we know the story, but it's also that we've sort of shifted Christmas in our own psychology. Um, it amazes me the images that we, particularly in America, that we associate with Christmas, right? Like, when you think of Christmas, we think of a Thomas Kincaid painting with a house covered in a blanket of snow, right? Or, um, or we think of manger scenes where every character is wearing a halo, including the donkey, right? Like, like everybody is so holy and pure and this story seems so removed. Or, or, or like I've never seen a nativity where Mary actually looks like she, she just gave birth to a child. Have you ever noticed that? Like... It's like, who is this serene, calm woman that's sitting here, right? I want to know who she is. And then you add all the other things, all the other dimensions. You have Rudolph with his red nose, and you've got the mice on the, you know, on the, the mantle that are hiding things, and you've got the stockings. Well, you've got all this lore around this season, and all of this is a perfect recipe for us to miss some of the significance of this season. Um, our historical distortions, if you will, or even our commercial interests, not only do they take away the grittiness and the humanness, but I think they rob us from our ability to find ourselves in this story. So tonight, I want to look at these more obscure aspects of, of the birth narrative. And specifically what I want to do is I want to look at the days and the weeks that follow the birth of Jesus. Oftentimes we talk about what happens before and then the actual birth, but I want to talk about what happens following it. Um, because here in the days that are following, we discover people who have thoughts and they have emotions and they have experiences like we do. They're regular human people. We get a front row seat, first of all, for two people who are going to wonder things. They're going to ask questions. They're going to live in the reality of the tension of, of wondering what's going on in their world. Which, by the way, um, that's a part of the, the human experience. It is a universal experience for all of us that we wonder. We ask questions. We think about things. Um, Think about a child, a, a two- or three-year-old. It doesn't take them very long. When they start talking, one of the first things they learn to ask is why, right? And then you answer them, and what do they ask? Why? And then you give them another answer, and they say why, right? We just ask questions. Even as children, we ask. And as we age, it's not that we stop asking questions. It's just that they get more complex. They get more difficult to answer. They get more existential. So part of being human means we ask big questions about life and God and the world we live in because we have a soul and soul's search. 
So we're going to consider the wondering of people, people that have questions. And then we're going to meet two people in the middle of this story who are waiting and, and, and waiting for something that they've expected, waiting for something that they haven't seen come to fruition, but there's been something that has told them this is going to happen. Like there's something out there in the future that's going to be good and beautiful and wonderful, but it hasn't happened yet. We're going to meet people who wrestle with that. And it's the same kind of thing we wrestle with. There's not one of us in the room that's never felt that sort of thing. When we're young, waiting in anticipation is usually more innocent. It's, it's pure. But the longing for something more sticks with us as we age, and it grows, and it grows more complicated. There's something in every human heart. There's something that's placed in us or that, that there's got to be someone else or something else that can satisfy this sort of nearly subconscious, constant longing in our souls for more. We want, we long, we wait. So we're going to see two people tonight that wait. So I want to go back. I want to recapture the raw beauty of this birth story, if you will let me. And, uh, and let me just remind you of a few things in case you forgot. There's this young couple that rides into Bethlehem, right? She's a teenage girl. She's nine months pregnant. She's on the back of a donkey, her husband leading her. Uh, because of a census, the town is full. The innkeeper, he has no space. And so he offers them this odd space. It's called a kataluma in the Greek language. It would have been like a courtyard area that was attached to the home. It was a strange sort of place because it was part of the home, but it was also where some of the domesticated animals would have been housed. And so it was like in the home, but it was not the kind of place that you would hang out. It's not the kind of place you would sleep. It's not the place you would find residence, but it's the only place available. And so he allows them to stay in his kataluma. And so they, they make themselves comfortable in this space. And there in the quiet of the night, in the most humble of circumstances, the most anticipated child in the history of the world arrives. The only sound, maybe the sound of crickets, maybe an occasional noise from the nearby animals. Other than that, that night was as silent as we sing about. It was a silent night. We talk a lot about that night, and we talk a lot about the events that lead up to that night, but I just want you to imagine when that night was over and the dawn was breaking, what was happening on the streets of Bethlehem. What was it like after Jesus was born? See, this whole thing, this whole story, it happens in, in real obscurity. No one really knew what was taking place in this town on this night. This was a minuscule blip on the radar of human history. Like if you took all of the scope of human history and then you identified this event, it barely makes a dent. This is just another girl and another boy bringing another child into the world. It has been done thousands and thousands of times before. So the child is born, and then the morning begins, and there's noise of people. There would have been noise around them. People in the streets, they would have been stirring. Uh, the, the census, because of the census and the tourists and the travelers that had come, Augustus had created sort of a local economic boom. There was an opportunity for the shopkeepers and the people that made various wares and food to, to maybe make some money. And so you can imagine that in that morning, the shopkeepers were dusting off their, their steps and they were unlocking their doors and people were taking carts and you could hear the, the wheels on the cobblestone streets. You could imagine that these things were taking 
taking place, that dogs are barking in the distance. The innkeeper probably woke up really early that morning because his house was full and all the beds were taken and so there was work to be done. And I just sort of imagine in those morning hours, I imagine people gathering around the breakfast table. Maybe it was at the inn or maybe it was at someone else's house. And maybe the conversation stirred around and landed on whatever happened with that young couple that came in late last night. Did anybody hear, did somebody hear a baby crying in the night? I just wonder if the conversation around breakfast might have been like, I wonder if they're okay. I wonder if they found a place. Regardless, I don't think the conversation lasted very long. Why? Well, because there was work to be done. There were chores to do. There were preparations to be made. So the day just begins to move on like any other day. Amazingly, God had snuck into the world and was laying in the arms of a teenage girl. The people that missed this, it's not because they were evil (laughs) and it's not because they were uncaring. It's just because they either weren't looking or they were too busy. That's why they missed him. So now you imagine Mary and Joseph. Imagine this. God has told you months in advance that this child is special, that this is the anticipated one. This is the Messiah. This is, as Jamie just saying, Emmanuel. This is God with us, God in human form. But think about it. They're holding this infant, and then as the noise breaks the morning after, I wonder, did it feel like there was anything special about this child? I mean, the day begins like any other day. Other than the lowly shepherds that had dropped by the night before, this birth was no different than any other birth of any other child. And the scriptures actually say that in the, in the hours after the birth that Mary, holding Jesus, that she pondered the things that had been told her by the angel, the messenger of God. She, she treasured and pondered. Pondered is a really interesting word when you think about it. It's saying that Mary was thinking about, she's holding the child and she's thinking about what somebody told her about this baby. She's wondering, like, what what is going to happen with the life of this child? Here she sat with little eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus, right, listening to the day begin, and it sounds like every other day that has begun before it. And then I think about the next weeks that came after that. I think about the journey that they had from Bethlehem back to Nazareth. I think about those days. I I think about the the exhaustion that sets in for new parents. Any of you who have had a child, you know what we're talking about. The the late night feedings, the late night changings, the constant exhaustion, the, the, the breaking up of sleep, all of those rhythms that are changed. I think about the questions that they must have had during all of those weeks that followed, right? Did they ever hold Jesus and say like, this is the Messiah? See, they might ask that because we don't have any record of Jesus being a spectacular, abnormal baby. (laughs) Like Jesus didn't come out of the womb speaking five languages, right? That didn't happen. He didn't walk after the first couple of weeks. Jesus wasn't solving calculus problems within the first month. None of those things happened. Jesus was a baby like any other baby, which means he ate and he cried And he did the things that you do after you eat and cry, right? That was Jesus. So imagine, imagine you're, you're five weeks in, you're six weeks in, and you're holding this child, and it's just like every other child, and you haven't heard from an angel, you haven't heard from anybody, it's just you 
and your spouse and you're caring for this baby. I imagine that they had to wonder at times, did we hear correctly? Like, you know, that was a long time ago. Should we like, did you write any, like I wonder if Joseph ever said to Mary, Mary, did you write down what the angel said? Because maybe we need to revisit that and make sure we heard him clearly, right? Like, did it ever cross their minds? Like, I, I, I can only imagine that sometimes Joseph maybe thought, Mary, can we talk about that angel that visited you? You know, like, is, let's, you know, they had to have some thoughts like this, right? 3 a.m., you're holding this baby. So, so back to the story for a moment. After eight days following his birth, Jesus is circumcised. We're gonna read about that in just a moment. And Mary, according to the law, she would have been required to quarantine for 40 days. This was um, in the book of Leviticus. Some of you know how much I love the book of Leviticus. And then uh, after that, they would make the trek to the temple and have Jesus dedicated, the temple in Jerusalem. I think about that. I think about Mary. I think about, here, here's a woman that has just delivered a child uh, a, a month earlier, and now she's gonna walk through the Judean hillside up to the city of Jerusalem, up to the temple to dedicate this child. And you think about all of the anticipation and all of the wonder and all of the questions, there had to be this tension for them walking to the temple of, like, we're doing this. We're doing, by the way, they're doing what every Hebrew couple would have done with their firstborn son, but they're doing this. But you know in the back of their mind, they're like, oh man, like, Lord, would you answer some of the questions that we have? Like, like what are we doing here? There had to be these kinds of questions. And in this moment, God does one of the most beautiful, he does, he does one of the most intimate personal things to encourage them. I want to read it to you. And by the way, when we read this, we're going to meet the other two characters in this story. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 2, this is right after the birth of Jesus. It says, when the eighth day arrived, the day of circumcision, the child was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived. Then when the days stipulated by Moses for purification were complete, they took him to Jerusalem to offer him to God as commanded in God's law that every male who opens the womb shall be a holy offering to God and also to sacrifice the pair of doves or two young pigeons prescribed in God's law. In Jerusalem at the time, there was a man, Simeon by name, a good man, a man who lived in the prayerful expectancy of help for Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And the Holy Spirit had shown him that he would see the Messiah of God before he died. Led by the Spirit, he entered the temple. As the parents of the child Jesus brought him in to carry out the ritual of the law, Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God. God, you can now release your servant. Release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes, I have seen your salvation. It's now out in the open for everyone to see a God-revealing light to the non-Jewish nations and glory for your people, Israel. Jesus' father and mother were speechless with surprise at these words. Simeon went on to bless them and said to Mary, his mother, this child marks both the failure and recovery of many in Israel, a figure misunderstood and contradicted, the pain of a sword thrust through you, but the rejection will force honesty as God reveals who they really are. And then we meet this other person. Anna, the prophetess, was also there, a daughter of Phanuel from the, land, from the tribe of Asher. She was by now very old, a very old woman. She'd been married seven years and a widow for 84. She never left the temple area, worshiping night and day with her fastings and prayers. At the very time Simon was praying, she showed up, broke into an anthem of praise to God, and talked about the child to all who were waiting expectantly for the freeing of Jerusalem. 
And then it says, when they'd finished everything required by God in the law, they returned to Galilee and their own town, Nazareth, and there the child grew strong in body and wise in spirit, and the grace of God was on him. Can you imagine how stunned they would have been in this moment? I mean, it says that they were shocked and speechless. They were shocked because they were walking in holding a baby that was just like any other baby, right? They looked like any other Hebrew couple entering the temple to dedicate their son. And Simeon makes this proclamation. He points to the child. He gathers him up. He he proclaims this blessing over him and says, this is the one. And the question that had to be in in their minds was, how does he know? Because at this time, there were all sorts of false messiahs. There were men that were rising up and, and they, were, they were claiming to be the messiah and others were claiming that these other people were messiahs and, and all of them, they either had some sort of charisma or leadership ability or they were good in battle and so somebody wanted them to be the messiah. But here, this man, he doesn't identify a grown man. He identifies a child, an infant that hasn't done a thing to prove that he's anything. But God has shown him he's the one. And so he proclaims this blessing. He knows. Can you imagine how comforting and how encouraging this moment would have been? It's been months since they'd heard from the angel, Gabriel, since this visitor had come. It's been months since they'd heard from God. And now this man says, without knowing a thing, this is the one. All of their questions, all of their fears in that moment were resolved. And I can't help but look at them and just say, God is so good to them, isn't he? And the reality is he's good to you and I as well. I have discovered in my wandering and in my wondering that God meets me in those places. Sure, sometimes a few weeks, maybe a few months go by, but he is always faithful to send a Simeon moment into my life, a little nudge, a simple message, somebody that intersects my story that says, no, no, you heard correctly. You're in, moving in the right direction. Keep leaning in. Keep going where you're going. He's good to us. In, in fact, I just want to consider this. Could it be that you, just being here tonight is a similar kind of moment. Like, you've had your questions, right? You've wondered because you're human, and humans question. And maybe this moment tonight is a confirmation that you're headed in the right direction. You're moving in the right way. That just you sitting here and going, this story, you're right. This is that reminder that God is 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 for me, and I need to lean into him. See, he's not afraid of your wandering and your wondering. In fact, it's in those times that we have our most profound moments with God, and that was certainly the case with Mary and Joseph at the temple. But then we also have this beautiful moment with Simeon and Anna, and they're waiting. I love the stories of these two people. They're amazingly faithful. It says that Simeon was a good man who lived with prayerful expectancy. Why? Because at some point in his life, he had this promise He had this sense that there was something out in the days ahead and he wouldn't die until he saw it fulfilled, right? There was this promise that he had. And and Anna was this woman that she prayed and fasted daily. She was among a group of people who were anticipating the liberation of the people of Israel. And so she's living with this longing, like, no, like the conditions we're living in, they can't last forever. There has to be something different. There has to be something more. We can't stay like this forever. They have this this longing, they have this waiting in them. And I mentioned a few minutes ago as I was beginning that this is a common universal feeling. We all hope, we all strive 
looking for something. We all scroll looking for something. We all swipe looking for something. We all wait. All of us have this sense that there's something inside of us that needs to be satisfied. C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian theologians and thinkers and philosophers, he described this desire we have as a far-off country that we're yet to visit. It's this feeling. It's this, it's this sense that we have. It's, it's the whisper of a voice in the night that says, this can't be all there is. There has to be more. Lewis, um, he also says that we try to explain those feelings away in our adulthood, in our maturity, that he, we explain those away with words like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. Like, like we, we have these moments or these feelings of nostalgia and we just go, oh, that's just, you're just being nostalgic. Like you, those feelings you have, that's, you're just hearkening to the past or you're just young and adolescent or you have those feelings of wanting it. No, no, that's just, you're just being a romantic and so we try to excuse it away. But I wonder, I wonder during seasons like this, during seasons like Christmas, when there are all these warm feelings and these idyllic pictures that we place in our minds, are those things that we conjure up, are they just simply nostalgia or are they something more? Is there something about this time of year when we long for a place that feels like home? When we long to be surrounded by people who love us and, and care for us? Could, could it be that around Christmas, the awareness of our longing increases and we're attempting to fill the void with whatever might be at hand? Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. He says, these things, the beauty, the memory of our past are good images of what we really desire, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we've not yet visited. For us to desire something far off is human. We have this inconsolable desire for something. And, and the worst part of it for most of us is, is that we, we think we know the answer and so we try to fill that void with something when the void is ultimately filled with God himself. Which brings us back to Simeon and Anna. You know, the line between holy hope and idol worship is a really thin line. But Simeon and Anna, they have God's fingerprints on their life. And so they're longing for something. They're longing for the real thing, not a counterfeit. They're, they're sustained by God. They're saying, no, no, there's got to be more. But God, I think this is going to be found in you. And then in this moment, just weeks after the life of this child, God doesn't simply drop them a breadcrumb. God doesn't say, oh, here's just one more little thing to keep you longing and keep you hoping and keep you waiting. He shows them the solitary person who resolves the universal longing that is in humanity. Jesus, this child. And so Simeon bursts into a blessing, and Anna, she's the first person, a woman, to ever preach Jesus. And she begins proclaiming Jesus around Jerusalem. Because our wondering has been answered, and our waiting is over. Are you with me? He is the one who resolves them both. Which leads us to this symbolic moment that we do every year at this time. And, and I'm just going to encourage you, when you came in tonight, you got a candle. And I want to encourage you to take that out.
And I'm going to ask that the lights be dimmed because this is also a symbol. See, the, the, the dim lights, the darkness, is a symbol of what it means to be wanting and waiting. Um, when we are, when we're wondering, when we're asking questions, it feels like there's just darkness around us. Like we have the questions, we just don't know where to find the answers, right? And so it's like sitting in a dark room. When we're longing for something that's out there, we can't see what it is. We just, we have this sense that there's something out there. And so life, a life of, of wondering and a life of, of, of waiting is a life sitting in darkness, not knowing the answer. But then Jesus enters the story. The light of the world enters and on that night everything begins to change because the story of Jesus begins to move from person to person from life to life so I'm going to invite you to stand with me right now and together we're going to sing Silent Night